Do you have a tricky work problem that you need to solve? I have a great podcast recommendation for you featuring a pair of expert women. Whether you're just starting your career or a seasoned professional, check out Fixable, a podcast from TED. Hosted by Harvard professor Frances Fry and her wife, leadership coach Ann Morris, the brilliant duo provide honest, actionable advice to help you navigate everything from a gaslighting manager to returning to work after parental leave. They'll leave you feeling empowered and ready to act. Listen to Fixable wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome to the Boss Up Podcast, episode 252. I'm your host, Emily Aries, the founder and CEO of Bossed Up. And lately here at Bossed Up, kind of like the entire world, we've been talking a lot about racial justice. I am cautiously optimistic that the growing attention being uh, given to the movement for Black Lives here in the U.S. in particular as it relates to police brutality in particular, will hopefully yield some lasting results in terms of lifelong activism on the path to pursuing justice. It's been challenging as a white passing half Latina woman to look at this angle from anything other than a white perspective, right? White supremacy is the water we swim in. It imbues our history books and our whole sense of perspective. And because Bossed Up and our listener base is so predominantly white, it has become the sort of default perspective through which we are talking about the movement for Black lives. And today we wanted to push ourselves to look at it from a different angle, in particular by talking with my former assistant who worked with me years ago now, Emmy Leia Kamamoto, and her colleague, David Masami Mariah, who have founded an organization called Strong Asian Lead and are specifically activists in Los Angeles who are organizing Asian communities standing up for Black lives and really pulling up for Black lives. So I'm excited today to talk that through. What does that mean? Uh, How can we bring a diversity and inclusion lens to diversity and inclusion itself? We're going to get a little meta here. We're going to remind ourselves of our history and hopefully leave you with not only a renewed sense of the nuances behind the movement for Black lives, but really thinking through how we can as white folks or folks of color. And I think this is a conversation that's especially important to have right now on the heels of our 75th anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So let's go ahead and welcome Emmy and David to the Bossed Up podcast. Emmy describes herself as a mixed-race, first-generation Asian-American who really focuses on cultivating diverse, equitable, and inclusive movements with changemakers in entertainment. She's been what she calls a work-in-progress activist for 11 years, lobbying Congress for voter education resources on behalf of the Tibetan government in exile, and as a board member for the Japanese-American Citizen League National Student Youth Council and Film to Future. She joined forces with David, who you'll also be hearing from, to start Strong Asian Lead, whose mission is to amplify the history, culture, and legacy of the Asian-American diaspora 
through an accelerator program aimed at creative careers and development careers. They also curate educational resources for civic engagement and produce impactful media celebrating Asian American activism. Emmy, welcome back to the Basta podcast. And I also want to take a moment to welcome David Masami Mariah, who describes himself as a mixed race, fifth generation Japanese American activist, screenwriter, and filmmaker who first dipped his toes into activism after the 2016 election. From there, he created Rogue Photo, a nonprofit photo agency to help photographers document the ongoing protests in New York, and recently moved back to Los Angeles to pursue his career in screenwriting for the Asian American entertainment industry. David and Emmy, welcome to Bossed Up. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much. It's such an honor to be on the pod. My pleasure. I am so excited to catch up with you in this way, Emmy, and to learn more about you, David, and the great work you two are doing with Strong Asian Lead. So first, catch us up. Emmy, you have been a part of the Bossed Up you know, ecosphere for a long time now and uh, my right-hand woman on staff at Bossed Up for quite a while. Tell me what you've been up to since taking your next step uh, after Bossed Up and, and tell us all about Strong Asian Lead. It's crazy to think that it's been almost four to five years since Bossed Up changed my life and just rocked my world. And I was able to work with you um, with partnerships. But I have transitioned all of the amazing knowledge and empowerment information that you shared with so many women and applied it to the areas that I uh, have really found my passion in, which has been the entertainment space. I think in the past four years, I've really been wondering, like, how do I connect activism with entertainment, because I know that I spent all of my spare time volunteering in social justice organizations or doing community work. Uh, I literally was traveling across town, Los Angeles to Little Tokyo three times a week. And I just thought there's got to be a way that we can make all of this collide together. And um, so after a time working at the Creative Artist Agency in their HR department, working on strategy and training, I have left and started Strong Asian Lead with my business partner, David. And we both attended the Young Entertainment Activists Activist event at the end of 2019, but we didn't even meet in person there. It was through LinkedIn that David reached out to me, and it was one of the rare messages that I opened and responded to. And we had a call in March, I believe, our first call. And there was just something about how well we synced. What really drew me to what David was communicating is that he first put himself as an activist first and an artist and creator second. And I was like, wow, that's a thing we can do that. <laughs> and I also saw that he had, he's using the term strong Asian lead. And I'm not sure if everybody listening is a, familiar with strong black lead, Netflix's initiative to promote black, create black created and distributed content on Netflix. They have podcasts, they have an Instagram account. And I really came into knowledge about strong black lead through their you're the top 10 black Christmas movies you should be watching. And it was being passed around Instagram. But we in very quickly in our first conversation started to wonder what could it look like if strong Asian lead was a thing to put it again into very current terms. And we started having weekly calls from there. Um, David, I would love to share kind of like what I, I, I've always 
been in love with this story, but like what made you think about nabbing this strong Asian lead handle and moniker? Yeah. And and David, give us some background on um, what brought you into the entertainment space and activism space overall. Yeah. Um, well, I studied filmmaking and screenwriting in college. Uh, it's something that I was always interested in. Uh, I wanted to do visual effects when I was a kid and high school. So I was doing like lightsabers, <laughs> stuff we play nice. around with. And then I started to realize, you know, how much goes into production and where the story comes from is from writing. And so I studied did the screenwriting stuff in, in college and UC Riverside. And then I immediately moved out to New York because I wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, and during that time, like I had started doing like photography and just street photography, got a job through there. And it ended up getting into protest photography. Oh, wow. And because I'd never gone to a protest, where I grew up is in Southern California is not very, it's very suburban. We don't, it's not city-like. So it's not all protests going on, if ever. Um, but when I went to the New York, I'd see him all the time. And my first protest was the uh, not not my president protest after the election of Donald Trump. And so I realized I could use my photography skills to help others get the word out. So I would donate my photos to people who are on the street, just like, here, give me your phone number. I'll send you your photo. And then I gave it into started. I built that into a small business doing uh, nonprofit work for other nonprofits so they can hire me or hire other local photographers. I connect them with there and local photographers get um, this quick job and nonprofits get photography. And so it kind of worked out for everybody. But during that time, I also was on a protest from Charlottesville to DC. And as a photographer, you're supposed to be like unbiased and not supposed to pick sides. And I was like, I'm I'm liberal. I'm, I'm progressive. I'm, I'm for the, for this side of things. But I didn't think I was a person of color and someone actually had to point out, you are a part of this conversation. You're Asian. And it blew my mind to realize, oh yeah, I am Asian, but I have no idea what it means to be Asian or what it means to be Japanese or what it means to be Asian and Japanese in America. Cause all the, I knew all those were, could be different, but I had not grown up that way. So I stepped away from my photography to figure out and do some self-exploring to figure out what does, what do these mean? And what, what am I missing in my life from my Japanese side of the family? Um, you know, I grew up, I'm a mixed, I'm a mixed race person. So I'm, I grew up a lot on my white side of the family. So when I realized I need to be, what's all this Asian, Asian part of me that is inherently, I look more Asian than, than my sisters. And so I experienced life differently. What I wanted to know was what have Asian Americans been doing in the activism space? Because I had not seen that. I don't see them going to big protests. I see people coming in and supporting in, you know, supporting as um, multicultural spaces. Yeah. And allies, but never in their own spaces. So when I just, when I started doing research, I'd find things like the Hawaiian strikes, the Hawaiian plantain strikes, or the California grape strikes. I'd find lots of moments of Asian American activism, but I never had heard of them. So I wanted to create a strong Asian lead tying in my activism, but tying in my entertainment space of filmmaking and screenwriting to like, let's tell these stories. Let's tell the stories in film and television that really make Asian Americans a part of ingrained and uh, woven into the fabric of American history. Right. I think it's interesting, isn't it, that there's so much happening 
today, especially this year around Black Lives Matter and the Black Lives Matter movement and police brutality in particular. And this country has a long sordid history of racism against Asian Americans as well. But, you know, it's it's a hard thing to compare. No one's trying to uh, injustice, you know, compare different racist acts that this government and this United States historically has committed over the years. But it is interesting to me that you yourself, David, and I'd be curious to hear about your take on this too, Emmy, you know, didn't experience race being at the forefront of your identity. And I don't think that's necessarily true for for black folks in this country. Emmy, tell us a little bit about how your your Asian American identity developed over time, or was it always at the forefront of your culture and your experience? Yeah, I found that I didn't know what race was at all until I moved to America when I was 11. So I grew up in Japan and had gone through most of life assuming that everybody had one Japanese parent and one non-Japanese parent because mm-hmm. a majority of the people around me were also mixed race. And I I feel very privileged and lucky to have been able to grow up in a place where my identity wasn't questioned. But when as soon as I moved to America, I started getting questions of what are you? And being in middle school, I was at a very vulnerable place in my life. And it became really clear that I had to choose a side. Was I white or was right. I Asian? Right. There was no room in anybody's imagination for me to be mixed race. And so I found myself jumping between those identities, mm. essentially clinging to which identity was convenient at the moment, mm-hmm. which has really informed the way I've approached understanding movements like the Black Lives matters movement and understanding people's experiences when they don't have a choice of which identity they're going to um that their which identity is most important and valuable to everybody else right it is interesting right because i remember my mother grew up in in latin america and south america and in colombia she's white <laughs> And even here in the States, she still passes. But my grandmother, who is white in Colombia, I mean, she grew up as a light-skinned Latina woman in Panama. But you come to the States, you know, where she moved with my grandfather to suburban Connecticut after living in Bogota and, like, living the life in Bogota, moving to suburban Connecticut, and all of a sudden she's Latina. You know what I mean? So it is interesting how context and other people's perceptions really create race in so many ways. And it's also super fascinating to me, not only what you were saying, David, about how the Asian American activist history in our nation is a very untold story, but whenever you integrate activism with art, like you two are doing, and in LA, I feel like telling stories is done at such a professional and global level. I'd be curious to learn more about what's the theory of change behind what you're doing, right? What is your your reason for being with Strong Asian Lead? Like, what's the ultimate goal? That is the best question for us because we understood that identity 
was something that a lot of big industries try to take away from people of color specifically. If you're entering the entertainment industry, there is this notion that you're going to go through some grunt work, that you are becoming one of the many in order to align with a greater company culture or a greater industry. Your individual identity doesn't matter as much. But when I was seeing people come through the doors of the agency world and the studios, et cetera, the people that were most memorable, the people that stood out that were most successful are the ones who really retained their strong sense of self and their strong sense of their identity and culture. That was essentially the secret sauce or the culture ad that a lot of these spaces were hungry for. They just didn't necessarily foster an environment where that was going to be okay, that your culture or your differences were going to be okay. And so when I looked at what I wanted to do in this environment of elevating Asian American identities and entertainment, I thought about, okay, where are we being asked to leave that identity at the door? Does it start in the working environment or does it start earlier than that? And we, we really knew that there's a value add in telling a story through your cultural lens, through your identity lens, because it makes it unique. And if Hollywood is obsessed with finding the newest story that's never been told again, then what better way than helping individuals develop stories, leaning on the fact that they have a unique identity and a story that hasn't been told. And what I liked about what was going on in Hollywood and still going on is that there are production companies and studios taking up stories of color. And I love what they're doing in promoting and celebrating those things. And when you see things like Strong Black Lead, there's also a Contoto podcast, with, um, which is like under name of Strong Brown Lead for uh, Latinx people. Uh, there's also Strong a Female Lead podcast, same, same show by Netflix, all the same things. And I love what they're doing because they're championing those stories, giving people a voice to be heard. But I didn't see Asian stories. Right. Yeah, what is up with Asian Americans just getting erased from the whole intersectionality combo? I think it's just it's just a part of, you know, we're still the perpetual foreigners. We don't think we're right. part of American society, and they don't know like the collective mindset doesn't think we're a part of it. So when they say go back to China, like, or go back to your country, like my family's been here for a hundred over a hundred years, so I'm very American. I had to learn what it meant to be Japanese through Google. I'm very thankful that my grandmother's still alive to tell me certain things. And, and I can she, I can ask her a question. She just will tell me. And she lives down the street. So I get to know all this information. But uh, there are so many times I didn't think that I was. And I can only remember a few times that I've been totally called out for being Japanese and my life threatened for being Japanese. And I didn't understand that. And when you, if we don't, if we, because we're not taught this stuff in, his, in history class, we're not taught about our history in, um, in schools, we don't see ourselves a part of an American society. And so, because I don't even see myself in part of it, I'm sure other people don't. So when you have the entertainment system also not doing that, no one sees that we're a part of this. So they don't think, they only see the stereotypes that were played down before and the media that's been played out throughout history. 
So that's they think it's just we are just the stereotype. We are the model minority. They think these they think these things, but if right. they give us a chance to uh, bu- suspend disbelief that we're quiet or we're subtle or all these different things that they think we are, and listen to us and what we're telling you as truth, then you can kind of understand and see like, oh, maybe there's something here. Yeah, I want to pick up on the model minority comment. Emmy, I think you introduced that whole concept to me many years ago when we first started working together. It doesn't get talked about enough. Can you explain what the model minority stereotype or reputation is all about? Absolutely. And David, please chime in here as well. What the model minority myth establishes is that Asian Americans are seen as almost white, which in itself is a problematic statement, but it stems from the fact that in the 1960s, America opened up its immigration policies to allow people with preferred status to immigrate or emigrate into this country. So that meant people with college degrees, doctors, PhDs, et cetera. And it gave Asian American or gave Asian families from Asia that were of an elite status, the opportunity to build their American dream. And that is seen as, yes, a progressive and a great movement. But what it fails to recognize is that Asian Americans have been facing that same systemic oppression that every other community of color has faced in the U.S. at different rates. I don't want to do any comparative suffering here, which is one of the things that really pays into the model minority myth. But there, we know in our history that Chinese bodies were used for labor to build our railroads from the West Coast towards the East and really ex- seen as a completely expendable. The Japanese Americans were incarcerated and put into concentration camps during World War II based on the fact that they were Japanese. And that wasn't because Japanese Americans were seen as a threat to our safety because of their connection to Japan. There's actually evidence that proves that the Salinas Farmers Lobbying Organizations in Salinas, California, one of the biggest agricultural industries or areas in the U.S., they saw that Japanese American farms were significantly more productive in their area. This is because Japanese farmers have always had to farm in really essentially rocky and small conditions because Japan is not a land of fertile fields, etc. And so they took the opportunity of war to say, well, if we could get these people kicked out of their land, then we can take their land. So all of these things were extremely racially motivated. And when we don't look into the history of the United States to see how people of color and groups have been systemically oppressed by the government and majority power, we fail to see that Asian Americans don't necessarily have the leg up that we all believe. However, it's kind of a double-edged sword, right? I'm almost hearing this like when we hold Asian American, the Asian American experience up as though it is a monolith, first of all, which it is very much not, but as though there's just one experience that has yielded better outcomes than other immigrant American like American immigrant stories we say they're great because they're basically white you know we like remove the otherness and then at the same time you know that's a racist 
you know, underlying assumption anyway to say that that which is closer to whiteness is better or whatever, more model. And then we also erase the historic injustices that Asian Americans have overcome. And so we we give them no credit, right? We give the Asian American population no credit for the the hard work that's gone into pursuing an American dream that was not easily you know, easily won. And then it brings us back to the modern day immigration policies coming out of this administration, which is like straight up. Can we go back to this idea of being selective and leaning towards white people coming to this country only or white -er people? And what it plays into now with racial tension between Asian American communities and black communities is that because this model minority myth exists, because oppressors had decided that Asians were the preferred type of people, even after World War II, there were so many publications that talked about the hardworking Japanese people. Maybe that was out of guilt because of uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm. Maybe it was a- another way to elevate a group above Black people. Mm-hmm. But Asian Americans have benefited from the model minority myth. And in many ways, we have also perpetuated that alignment towards whiteness because it's what's kept people safe. And I think like the nuance that is difficult and has been difficult in the research that David and I have been doing around Asian American in in the justice space is like, how do how have Asian Americans benefited from the model minority myth? When have we leaned into it? and chosen to align people for that reason of safety. Right. I, I, I want to pose that question right to you, David. Like, on top of that, how what does it look like for Asian Americans to be in active allyship with other communities of color, you know, and be part of Black Lives Matter? What does that look like and why is that important? A lot of people that I come across in the Asian, Asian American space don't understand and I think it's because we're not we're not we're told by our parents to Americanize, right? This idea to be more more aligned with America and kind of its government, so that we are not put in a position that we're going to get in trouble. Especially for the Japanese community, it's you know 1941 Pearl Harbor happens in 1942. America says if you're Japanese, it's illegal, and you're going to put into camps. So whether you're American citizen or not you were put into camps. Your all your rights were stripped away. And so your parents are in your your first duty as a first, especially as a firstborn son, like your duty is to protect your family. But to protect your family, what does that mean? Does that mean to well, they shouldn't be going to these camps. They didn't do anything wrong. So I'm going to try to save them by going against the government. But your family doesn't want you to get into more trouble. Because if you go against the government, what they're already putting us in camps. They're going to take you and put you into prison. And if they put you into prison, they might beat you. They might starve you. They don't. We don't know what they're going to do to you. Like nineteen, right after Pearl Harbor, they started taking Japanese men, Japanese immigrants who are community members. I re- I realize this how how what timely this is because they were federal agents coming in taking men without question, without purpose, and, take, and and telling them nothing. That's happening exactly now in Portland, New York. And we don't know where they're at. We don't know when they're getting out or how we can contact them. Um, so 
to be Asian American and in this space, your, your parents try to keep you safe as well. Don't cause any trouble. Don't rock the boat because you might get in trouble and we don't want you, we want you to succeed. Right. right. So want- yeah. Even in an unjust environment, it's like play by the rules, even in the oppressor's right. book. Right. Yeah. At the same time, I can't go as far as I want to go. I can't, I, I can't thrive. So some people know about the Vincent Chin case, which is when in Detroit in 1982, two white men beat to death a Chinese man with baseball bats. And they got away with it. They they were sent a little bit of fees, like lawyer fees, but otherwise the, the judge let them go because these don't look like bad men. They won't do it again. And they beat him because they thought he was Japanese. Because during that time, the American auto industry was failing because Japan's auto industry was booming. And so people were losing their jobs. And so they said, let's go beat that. Excuse, excuse it, but let's go beat that Jap. And they went after him. It is interesting how you're also reminding me of the story Emmy was telling about the farm workers, which is oftentimes when it comes to white fear of like the Eastern other, um, whatever nation we're talking about, I feel like China is very relevant today because of our crazy president. <laughs> um, <laughs> the fear is often economic and then racially tied. So... It's, it's always been that way. And if you look back at the Asian American history too, when the Chinese, Chinese, besides the Filipinos coming in the 1500s, the Chinese came in next in the 1800s to build the railroads. And a lot of the mainly Irish immigrants coming through, they were saying they're taking our jobs. And when the Japanese came in, they're taking our jobs. It keeps coming through it. Um, but I want to jump back to the police brutality. I was jumping off from Vincent Chin, but of very little unknown stories, my uncle, Robert Morio. He was driving after late night, hanging out with his friends at a bar. He got into a small car crash. The the police officer came and an ambulance came. He looked fine. He was not really hurt. His friend said, hey, do you want us to stay? We'll stay back. We'll we'll make sure. And he's like, nah, we're all good. We'll be fine. They left. The ambulance left. And by the time his friends got home, my uncle was shot five times by that officer. The officer was double his size, twice his weight. And Robert, being 19 years old, being an engineering student, had no threat. And that officer also got away with it. Yeah, okay. So that's, wow, I'm so sorry that happened. And how how has that informed your activism personally? You know, knowing that you are one generation removed from police brutality impacting your Asian relative personally? I mean, how does that inform what you're doing when it comes to Asians for Black lives? It makes it so relevant. It makes me understand how it can affect someone's family and what does it look like to, to just not have any justice justice had for your for what's been done just because they got away with it and even if they had previous previous uh, charges that an officer did and he got still got away with it. So it hurts me and it hurts, I know it hurts my family, hurt my family 
And then, so when I go out and try to protest and talk about it, I mean, people do listen, but when people say, I have no place in this because you're Asian, like stay out, like, but we're all fighting for the same thing. I think a lot of people feel that way right now. I, the majority of my listener base is white. Um, and I think a lot of white folks are like, ugh, do I donate? Do I put up a sign? Like, what do I do? I'm not sure what's my place here. And seeing what you're doing on Instagram through Strong Asian Lead and sort of tying racial justice across racial groups is such an important story to be told, one that is imbued throughout our history as a nation, but also very much happening in real time. So what do you want my listeners to know? Like if you were to say, here's how to pull up in a in an intersectional way, you know, what should we be thinking about at work, in our communities, in our own families, especially as it relates to activism across racial lines and uh, for biracial folks like yourselves in particular? Pulling up for me has really resonated because we, what I've seen in so many, what I've heard in so many conversations is a lack of understanding that we have the ability to empathize with one another as communities of color. There is, it doesn't take very much to dig into history to see that the pain and suffering that has hit the black and brown communities and indigenous communities has also hit Asian American communities. And we found that there was an opportunity to talk about that and teach that history. We've gone through iterations talking about presenting this information in a podcast, but it ultimately came through an initiative that David led the charge in. And the minute he said, Emmy, I think we need to just put a quick pause on our career accelerator and launch our initiative for the Black Lives Matter movement, I was all in because that's where my heart particularly wanted to go. I was, I have been in online spaces where my activism for the movement for Black Lives was seen as, oh, you don't have a place here. You're Asian. Like you never helped in the first place. And I wanted to see if that was true. One of the pieces that I really love is Laura Pulido's Black, Brown, Yellow, and Left. And it's a, an amazing book that talks about how Black, Brown, Yellow communities combined their powers in the 60s for civil rights. There was so much work that each of these communities have done in service of their own identities that they were coming together for teach-ins. So we launched our Asians for Justice initiative and hosted our first teach-in about pulling up as Asian Americans for the Black Lives Matter movement. We wanted to normalize the fact that a lot of us don't have a grounding in the history. And a lot of us have also perpetuated racism without the intention of hurting other communities. But that's a thing. When, when we're not aware of it, it's maybe not intentional, but it still has a damaging impact. So we wanted to create that brave space where people could listen in and think, okay, as an Asian American, how do I maybe activate? How do I show up and maybe not get called out? Unfortunately, there is no way, shape, or form in the activism space that I have seen that not getting called out is an option. You will get called out. 
And I want, if I could give one piece of information to all listeners and to all people who are joining this activism space, it's that the call out is such a gift because it's a big spotlight on an area that you have an opportunity to learn more about. If somebody doesn't take the time to explain why this hurt them, then you can research, okay, why might that be? You can talk to other people. And it might be a little bit less emotionally charged than when talking directly with the person that called you out. But it gives you that opportunity to learn more and then do better each time. I have been dragged. Yeah. I'll drop a link into today's show notes with an episode I did on calling out versus calling in too, which I think is so important understanding if this is if these conversations are happening at work, which I mean, what even is work right now? Work life is like, is there a difference? There's such a blend for everybody right now, um, you know, knowing that there are options. But I think your point about activism is inherently about putting sticking your neck out, like getting some skin in the game. And, you know, everyone's own risk tolerance is different and should be calculated personally. But I think uh, what I'm hearing in your call to action here is like everyone has a place at this table um, in this conversation and that advocating for black lives does not mean we're not advocating for other lives too, right? And and that does not minimize the Asian American experience either. And Strong Asian Lead is about creating a table for Asian Americans to talk, to build their power and understand the history that has existed for a long time of our own activism so that we can see ourselves in these roles. The space that we want to create in entertainment is that we can show the true complex nature of Asian American identity within the entertainment space so that Asian Americans can see themselves as the activists, can see themselves as the listener, not just the nerd, not just the doctor, not just the funny man, right? And we know that the people who have led these movements for other cultural identities have gone through these steps. We want to create that space for Asian Americans and then work with the other communities as a whole to make sure that we are not underrepresented anymore. Right. David, is there anything you'd like to add to that? Amy always has really great words for this in this, this space. Um, but, you know, for me, it's, you know, it's pull, pulling up, but step up. You know, if you have, if you're seeing something that's wrong, step up. If you feel like you're being shut out, step up. Like, it's just like, I think a part of the whole, because we benefit from the model minority myth, some people play into the model minority myth, especially when you're growing up, you're just trying to fit in, but, and to play into that is to like step back. And I think a lot of people, just people are generally oppressed, will just step back when they're told no, but to say no to that no is so powerful. And it's like, I'm not going to stand for that. And so when something's wrong in the world, stand up stand up and do something you know new york's always see something say something i'm like see something do something <laughs> like something happens and you think you can do something about it and you see no one else doing anything do something it could be it could be anything and when it comes to going to protests and or just pulling up bringing your allyship forming a group is always helpful with even with yourselves or with your part of the community. You know, for me, it's about bringing agents together so that we can all understand what we're doing and how we play into this role instead of trying to integrate myself into another one. But 
also using what talents you have and figuring out where you can use those talents to best help the movement. Right. My first, my first big talent was photography. Now I'd already been a filmmaker at this point, but I already, I knew how much work goes into filmmaking, into the video editing, how much you need to get, how much you need to put out and you only get one time to post it. When I, but I switched that when I knew photography and saying, well, that's very easy for me to pull, uh, to go take a bunch of photos, to hand them out to different people. They're going to like them. They're going to use them for their Instagram photos. So then they are promoting the movement that they've been in it and that I can use all these photos to donate to a nonprofit because they're going to use them and they can use, you know, one, one, if I give them 30 photos, they can post one post per day for a whole month. So it was easy for me to put in some energy and very effective to get the output. Right. And I love the example because when you say stand up and do something, you're right. It really could be anything. And if for creatives listening, there are creative ways to share your talents and gifts with the world in a way that contributes to activism and amplifies voices that need amplification. I have to let you two go. I could talk to you two forever. But one last rapid fire question for the two of you Um you know, I think you're absolutely spot on in acknowledging there aren't that many strong Asian leads in our culture, in this world right now, especially coming out of Hollywood. What should we be watching? What should we be reading? What should we be listening to that you would recommend that does have a strong Asian lead that we, that we, the listeners of Bossed Up, the whole Bossed Up community should put on our must watch or must read list? If you could see our content to consume channel in Slack, you would be overwhelmed with the number of voices that are talking about this. I honestly, my hot take on this is to hold space in your own community to ask your Asian American friends or your, if you're, you yourself are Asian American, ask the question of like, hey, do you know the history of activism within our community. And there are so many individuals that we lean on as being leaders, whether that's Yuri Kochiyama or um, my, I love Laura, Laura Pulido, who, you know, who's Filipino American and created spaces for teach-ins because she is one of those community leaders that's kind of not hit the limelight, but has written held spaces and teachings and written so much. So I would highly recommend Black, Brown, Yellow, and Left to, again, be able to imagine what a world looks like when we're all collaborating. That would be my number one. Yeah. So a book I like, I haven't actually finished it, is, but is um, Frank H. Rue's Yellow. It's um, Race in America Beyond Black and White. Uh, that's a, it's a thick book. It's very dense, but it's also very good. The other one is uh, Making Asian America. Um, this audiobook's great on that one because it, it'll go through the whole process of the of how the Asian American history. Um, and as a podcast, Asian Enough by the LA Times is great. Uh, they're always talking to somebody. Um, but I think in the general sense, it's like just if you look at a lot of um, women of color and people of color and how they've broken the barriers, a lot of times it's an Asian American who's broken broken the color barrier, like Wat Masaka who broke the barrier for basketball and Pat. Um, Patsy Mink, who broke the barrier, color barrier for Congresswoman. I love it. I love it. I'm excited to see Hollywood pull up. <laughs> and I think with you two, 
uh, doing what you do in LA and in the world. We are on to a better and brighter future. Thank you both so much for sharing your time and, and talents with us today. Thank you, Emily. It's been an honor. Learn more about all the resources mentioned in today's conversation at bossedup.org slash episode 252. And now it's time for this week's boss move of the week. Today, I want to give a big hearty shout out to Annie, a recent graduate of Hired, my job search accelerator program, which is a three-month-long intensive program with weekly accountability calls and curriculum and job search assignments to help you accelerate the trajectory to getting the job you really want. Now, while Hired is really best for folks with full-time jobs who are trying to juggle the job search with holding down a job they might not love, in fact, they might loathe, Annie had a really unique experience of joining Hired in April and then losing her job later that month. So she went from being a part-time job seeker to a full-time job seeker and really had to accelerate her, her timeline. Um, but she stayed organized. She stayed committed. She kept the faith. And through everything that we covered at Hired, she really orchestrated a very targeted and strategic job search. And just about two weeks ago now, she sent a message out to her former cohort members who she had continued meeting with even after the program was over, updating us with an exciting new job offer where she wrote the following. The job offer is $7,000 more than the position I had before. It meets my initial expectations, but I'll be reviewing the negotiation curriculum within the hired program to put together a counter offer too. She also went from having just a handful of direct reports to now having over 30, and she'll be reporting directly into her organization's chief operations officer. Congratulations, Annie. This is such a major job offer during a really challenging time and you stuck your landing like a boss. I could not be more proud of you. If you want to learn more about the Hired program, head to bossedup.org slash get hired or head to our free job search guide, which is chock full of tons of step-by-step information at bossedup.org slash job search. If you found today's conversation with Emmy and David inspiring, thought-provoking, share it right now on social media and be sure to tag me at Emily Aries or at bossedup.org and weigh in in the comment section at bossedup.org slash episode 252. And if you have a career conundrum that you want me to unpack on an upcoming Bossed Up podcast episode or a boss move of the week that you want to share, Give my podcast hotline a ring right now at 910-668-BOSS or 2677. Until next time, keep bossing, y'all, in pursuit of your purpose and of the world that we all want to live in. And together, let's lift as we climb. 